and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have become real to us because we believe the more they're real, the more we can draw out of them, and we need all the help we can get. I'm your host, Kerry Mulstein, and I'm thrilled to have with me today a returning guest and colleague and good friend of mine, George Pierce. Uh, George uh, is uh, also a, a professor of ancient scripture at BYU, and um, he is uh he directs well he has uh participated in many excavations in israel and uh has studied at uh, ucla so has a, a phd from the same department uh, and and place that i do but with a slightly different emphasis although we had overlapping emphasis since uh we both did archaeology and we both did hebrew bible but um he also went to uh, Wheaton. I'll let him tell you what that is and, and so on, and uh, is just a fantastic guy. So welcome, George. All right. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Yeah. Tell us uh, Tell us what else we should know about you. Most people uh, probably don't know anything about Wheaton. So No. So Wheaton College is, a, is an evangelical college in the suburbs, western suburbs of Chicago, um, in Wheaton, Illinois, um, hence the name. Uh, it was founded in 1853. Um, historically it was anti-slavery and so adopted, um, formerly enslaved persons as students. Um, and it's just been sort of like on the forefront of evangelical, uh, sort of scholarship, if you will, um, since its inception, actually. So we always used to joke that DuPage County, because of the number of Christian publishers to churches, Wheaton College and others, it's sort of the Vatican of evangelicalism. Um, in a way, um, but I was I was privileged to go there, and uh, and, and you were evangelical at the time. At the time, yeah. So I was, uh, yeah, I was evangelical at the time. I went to what was called College Church, even though it's not associated with the college. It's literally across the street, College Church, um, and most of the archaeology department went to College Church as well. So we all saw each other on Sundays, and uh, it was just a good experience. Both of my professors were Harvard trained, and so I always joke that uh, I got a Harvard education at a Wheaton price which is uh, really nice to, to do. Um, and then, you know, from there I'd gone to, I went to school in England um, and then ended up at UCLA after some time in, in Israel. And so uh, then I ended up at BYU. Weird, weird, right? <laughs> you at UCLA, you how I showed up. Oh, that's right. Yeah, right. It was at UCLA that you joined the church. Is that correct? Uh, yes. It was at UCLA where I joined the church and that was under the, um, influence of the Holy Ghost, but also the quiet witness of my now wife and eternal companion, Dr. Crystal Pierce. Um, and she just lived the gospel. And uh, it was a, how should I put this, a holier and more dedicated gospel than I was living, even as an evangelical. Um, and it just made sense. And after a while, the restoration made sense. Um, and with a testimony of that, then I joined the church and we were sealed uh, like a year and a month later, something like that. And uh, and then a couple of years later, I ended up teaching uh, Book of Mormon at BYU. So isn't that an interesting sort of turn of events? Yeah. Well, you, you tell uh, Crystal, who I've known longer than I've known you, she, she has a PhD in Egyptology from UCLA like me. Uh, and uh, we are doing a public call out of Crystal that uh, we'd like to have her on sometime too. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So before we, we jump in, let's just kind of go over. These are the things we're going to talk about today. We've got a lot to, to cover, but we're going to talk about um, really the triumphal entry uh, or or Palm Sunday or Christ being accepted as Messiah and uh, also the fig story, the story with the figs, and we'll explore the meaning of that. Uh, this is all George's idea, by the way, so he's the one that's taking us there, but we'll explore the meaning of that and and tie that in with some Old Testament imagery and and the idea of kingship and of, of wanting to see and come to Christ with some of the parables and some of the other stories that happen in this time period and, and the idea of coming to Christ and the Father. Uh, some really fun connections that we're going to make, and I think it'll be a, a great ride today. All right. Well, we've got more to talk about today than we could possibly talk about, and uh, it's not in the nature of this podcast to try to cover everything. There are others that do that amazingly well, and we love them and are grateful for that. Uh, but we'll just talk about what we end up having time to talk about, uh, drilling as deep uh, as we want whenever we want. So, George, what uh, what places would you like to take us today? All right. Well, today's scripture block, actually, there's a whole lot of them because we're looking at yeah. A portion of the synoptics and also something that lines up in the gospel of john 
And so we'd be looking at Matthew 21 to 23, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. And if we had an unlimited... I think it's podcast, Luke 19 through 20, isn't it? Or am I yeah, wrong? Yeah, Luke 19 and, and 20, if I'm not mistaken. But if yeah. we had an unlimited podcast, we could do um, most of this. Right? There's so much to talk about. Yeah, um, that's but, seven big, deep chapters. That's, yeah. that's, that's a lot to cover. There is a lot to cover. Um, I just want to give a couple sort of, let's think about um, some cultural things, right? Some cultural backgrounds to this. Um, if we were to sum it all of it up, we just call this the chapters on the triumphal entry mm. uh, and then teachings following that. We haven't gotten to sort of deeper into Passion Week yet. Uh, we're still at the sort of first day, which would be Palm Sunday, and then a couple, maybe a couple days after, but nothing right too further down the road. Um, Maybe we can just uh, define a term if that's all right. So sure. uh, just because Latter-day Saints are not used to the phrase Passion Week, when we did like a kind of a short series, like just 10 to minutes about each day of Holy Week or Passion Week back when that was happening. But I used that term Holy Week because I didn't feel like I had the term to time to define passion. So tell us, why do most of our Christian cousins is the phrase that uh, that Elder Stevenson just used, although I, I, I feel like there are brothers and sisters, but uh, but cousins, they're also cousins. So anyway, uh, most of them use the phrase Passion Week. Why? What does that mean? Um, so the passion refers to the passion itself refers to Christ's suffering, um, his death on the cross, and then um, which would then culminate in his resurrection. And so this is typically called the Passion of the Christ. And so, yes, there's a movie by the same name. Um, but this is right. This is what we sort of refer to. And it comes from, from Latin, it comes from the Catholic church and it kind of gets brought in and co-opted into Protestantism. Um, sometimes we, it's called Holy Week. And I think that's more of a Protestant way to yeah. differentiate from the Catholics, right? Calling it Passion Week. I have no problem calling it either. Is Christ passionate in this week? Absolutely. Uh, we sort of moderately define passion. Um, yeah, and I think that's why we end yeah. up often saying a Holy Week now, because passion doesn't has more meanings for us now than it did when it was first called Passion sure. Week. Uh, when we hear passion, typically we think romance these days yes. or or uh, but sometimes he's really passionate about this. That means like a depth of feeling. Right. But uh, initially it was kind of a, a depth of suffering. A, a, uh, so a, a strong feeling, but largely connected with suffering. Yes. And so because he has this feelings of suffering and everything else, there's this association with passion um, that, again, does not have the romantic connotation that we normally put on it in the 21st century. And it um, it starts with Palm Sunday and his triumphal entry. And um, you've already had a podcast marking out the sort of days and what happens on each day. Yeah. And there are plenty of good resources for that, but it culminates, obviously, on Easter Sunday, which we've just celebrated and is probably one of the greatest and should be one of the greatest celebrations within Christendom, to be quite honest. Yeah, it's, um, it's the most important events. thing to celebrate. It is. And in, in, if we think about the impact, as, as President Ezra Taft Benson had said, because Christ is resurrected, every living being will be resurrected. That's immense. Yeah. Right? And so it should have cause for us, honestly, to be dancing in the aisles. Um, which I've I been th I think, to some church services where that happens. So yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think President Hinckley once said, uh, if there is no Easter, then there's no Christmas, right? What's the point of celebrating Christmas if there isn't Easter? So Precisely, precisely. So um, the passages that we have here are the sort of lead up. Uh, and the first day or so, um, Luke 19 is going to start well ahead of the, the triumphal entry in jericho so jesus is down there and he's going to talk to zacchaeus and then he's going to come up from jericho ascending from what 400 meters below sea level so about 1200 feet up to jerusalem which is 800 meters above sea level so there's a lot of change in elevation and then he's going to stay in um, bethany with lazarus yeah. and mary and martha and then take off from bethagy which is next to bethany and make the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Um, the other Gospels, Mark and uh, Matthew and John, are just going to start with him riding on the donkey and going into Jerusalem. And I think that that's a very fine place to start. Um, we may call up Zacchaeus uh, in a little bit. Um, but um, let's go with Mark. Um, New Testament scholars have a 
have a phrase, the right mark and priority, like start with mark and then move to the other ones. Um, so we can start with mark and go from there. Uh, so mark chapter 11 then. Uh, says when they came and, and just so I guess so my audience knows part of the reason for that is that it seems like uh, Mark Matthew and Luke incorporate Mark's material into their writings and so uh, the idea is that chronologically Mark is first and that's why we would uh, do what you were talking about there so anyway sure. sorry yeah. keep going no you're fine um, so let's go start with Mark 11 when they came out of Jerusalem unto Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent forth two of his disciples and saith unto them, Go your way into the village against you, and as soon as ye enter into it, you shall find a colt tied, whereon never man sat, and loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will he will send him hither. And they went their way, they found the colt tied by the door, without in a place where the two ways met. They loosed him, certain of them that stood there said unto them, What do ye loose in the colt? They said unto them, even as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus, cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off the trees and strewed them in the way. And they that went before and they that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And this then is the account in Mark of how Jesus enters into Jerusalem, what we call the triumphal entry. Um, the other gospel accounts have the same sort of thing. John says that they take branches of palm trees down and they're crying, Hosanna, blesses the king of Israel that comes in the name of the Lord. And right, he he does all this. And and we've heard a lot about the triumphal entry and, and sort of thinking about this. And I, I think one of the things I sort of like want to just sort of mention and we can go on from here but one of the things that, that really stands out to me and um what makes the scriptures real for me is that scripture tends to draw on other scripture and scripture builds on imagery in other scriptures imagery that sometimes we don't understand because we're so removed in time and space from the context of the scripture and so in all of these accounts um, all four of the gospel accounts, we have him showing up He in the in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we call synoptic gospels. He tells them to go find this cult and take it. And if anybody asks, you tell them that the Lord hath need of him, and they do it. And then he gets on it, and then they spread their clothes, and they lead him in. And we're all familiar with the paintings, some which are hanging on chapels, of this, right, uh, of this sort of entry. And much has been made of this in some certain ways. I don't know, maybe your audience has heard this or not. Um, typically, and I think this was probably my very first institute class as an investigator in UC at UCLA, um, was on the triumphal entry. And a lot was made right, by the institute uh, teacher who was teaching the class um, about the um, humility of the Savior in riding a donkey uh, <laughs> into Jerusalem. And everything that's going on there. And I can tell right by your laugh that, that you yeah. know right where I'm going with this. Yeah. And uh, so I raised my hand and I was like, actually, I don't, I don't think that's what's going on here um, at all. Um, and one of the things, like I said, I love about scripture is that it references or at least draws on imagery of other scripture. Um, and it's clear here that the people recognize that there is a kingly entry uh, a kingly aspect to Jesus' entry. Um, they talk about their father, David, um, which is a very sort of kingly thing, um, right? Blessing is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, all these other things. Um, and, and as we look at this, John points it out very specifically um, that as he quotes this from Zephaniah, uh, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh, right? Sitting on the um, donkey's colt. Uh, and so Jesus is doing this not only as a um, response or as a fulfillment of Zephaniah's prophecy, which is a great thing. Um, but when we look elsewhere in the Old Testament and we look at the use of king plus donkey, um, it's very clear that what Jesus is doing, and I think the people are picking up on this when they see it, is he is putting himself into the role of the king of Israel. 
And that goes back to 1 Kings chapter 1. And so we have this situation in which um, in 1 Kings 1 that um, David is giving instructions to have Solomon crown king. Solomon goes down to the Gihon Spring at the base of the city of David. And there he is anointed to be king um, with the authority of Nathan the prophet and Zadok the high priest. And then what do they do? They put Solomon on a donkey and they lead him back into Jerusalem. And so the humility aspect may not be what we want to sort of draw a lesson on. But the aspect of Jesus as king is something that struck these people very clearly in a very Solomonic way, but should strike us as well. Um, I mean, the donkey, as humble as we may consider it, the donkey was considered the animal of royalty in the bronze and in the iron ages back in the old testament times and and that's partially because kings were being crowned riding donkeys before they had horses in the area right they didn't have a horse to ride Uh, so i guess you could ride a cow or a donkey but people typically didn't ride cows so uh yeah this goes back into ancient Mesopotamia, everywhere in the ancient world. And again, there weren't horses. So this is what you wrote. By the way, I think it's Zechariah, isn't it? That gives the. It, it, it probably is Zechariah. I probably missed. I think it's Zechariah 9. Zechariah 9. Remember, right? Yeah, Zechariah 9, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. So I misspoke there. But Zechariah chapter 9. Well, those guys sound a lot alike. Yeah, that's what John is going to draw on to yeah. talk about. Um, that triumphal entry and sort of give the prophetic parallel. Yeah. But Jesus in a, in a very Solomon way comes into Jerusalem. Yeah. And, and I've often said, I mean, we don't know. So the, uh, how other Kings were anointed, we don't get that story except for one. We have the story where he's hidden in the temple because they're killing all the other heirs. And so he's sitting there and then they bring him out in the temple and say, aha, we've got a King here and they crown him. Um, so that's an unusual circumstance, but because Solomon, who is the first king to successfully succeed his father in in Israel, um, he sets the precedent in many ways. I would be surprised if most kings of Judah weren't crowned by riding a donkey to the the Gihon Spring, the gate at the Gihon Spring, and being crowned in the same way Solomon uh, was, because this idea of being the descendant of David which they're drawing on that imagery here is so huge. And that starts with Solomon, the literal son of David. Um, uh, And uh, there's no doubt that when they see him on the donkey and they say son of David, that they are thinking of these things. He has triggered the right symbolism, the right cultural memories uh, or scriptural memories, whichever you'd like to call them. And they're both um, that, that he has triggered the right things for them to say, finally, well, he actually has in teachings just before this been pretty clear he is the Messiah. But finally, he is allowing himself to be seen as the kind of Messiah we've been looking for. Now, they're wrong. Uh, he's he, 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 Well, they're wrong and they're right. They're right, just in a different way than what they're thinking, right? He is about to conquer their enemies. It's just not Rome. Yeah, completely different, completely different enemy than what they're thinking. Yeah. Um, and a completely... A uh, different set of of expectations to be had, I think, than yeah. than what they were thinking. But but they they clue in on those things. Yeah, Correctly, absolutely. Son of David, there's this king, and it, it's enough. Then, as we as we kind of see in John chapter twelve, to to take that, it's enough to see that if it concerns the religious leaders, yeah. that uh, that there is a concern there about him and what he's doing and we see that in the synoptic gospels as well and it's it's a very real concern because if they have i don't know upwards of millions of people coming to jerusalem for passover if they have people acclaiming jesus to be the son of david and to be a messianic king of some sort and there's enough of a popular upswell in his popularity then this potentially causes or presents a threat to not only the um, Jewish religious establishment, but also to the Romans in in charge of this. And so the Jewish religious leaders, the Sadducees, who are currying favor with the Romans, are rightly concerned about the population and what's going on here um, in terms of this. Now, 
he's going to come in and he's going to go to the temple and he's not going to just right waltz to the administrative building and take over things. So that may be a different expectation um, or at least a disappointment uh, for their expectations and what they expected. Yeah, I but, don't think they expect him to go and, and throw over money changers and stuff. That's that's not the first conquest he was going to make. Yeah, that's not the conquest yeah. uh, that they were expecting. Wait a minute, you're attacking us. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but it's interesting in the, in the sense that um, they have the right idea. It's just the, not the right timing yet, I think. And and when we look at Revelation 19 and, and, and John's vision of Christ returning, there he's on the horse. And there yeah. he's coming back as the conquering king. And that makes sense. Um, so I think it's, it's, a, it's a situation of, you're right, there's an enemy that's going to be conquered, not the one that they're thinking about. Yeah. Um, eventually all the rest touched. of them are going to put on his feet too. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I can just touch on on one thing real quickly, just because uh, it's kind of tying together uh, something we did in an earlier podcast. Um, if we're in that John account um, and we see like it's chapter 12, verse 15 is where they say, oh, he, he, well, he, he's fulfilling the prophecy that King Kama on a cult's ask. And he tells us, yeah, they didn't quite get this to begin with. And then they got it. But verse 17 is interesting to me. The people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead bear record. Uh, and we've talked before about how that's such a seminal um, miracle uh, that caused a number of people to say, OK, I don't know how to conclude anything, but this is the Messiah. Uh, and and John is continuing with that idea here. So it's John that has that in John chapter 11. And then in chapter 12, he's continuing the story saying, no, it's, it's those people, the people who saw that. They're the ones that are also seeing this and bearing record. Absolutely. And, and there's no way, I mean, if you think about the John 11 miracle, and, and I'm sure we already discussed this, but if you think about the John 11 miracle and the people who saw that, who recognized that Lazarus had been dead for four days, not yeah. just like he recently died, he had passed out that afternoon and passed away or something. It was within a day. It was four days. They, they were well aware of the decompositional processes at work biologically. And yet Lazarus comes out as a picture of the resurrection with no problems. Yeah. Right. No scars, no decomp, nothing else. How could it be anything but a miracle in terms yeah. of that? And so, um, yeah. And, the, and these are the people, like you said, they're, they're the ones in, in verse 17 of John chapter 12. They're bearing record, telling everybody else, this is what this guy did. Yeah. Right? This is what this guy did. And so it's no wonder that the crowds in Jerusalem are going to start to to have this sort of popularity right, um, thing going on um, in terms of this. And so. Right, we have uh, Jesus, I would dare say, probably at the height of his popularity in his ministry is on Palm Sunday. I agree. By the time we get to Thursday night, we don't have anybody following him except for Peter and John, maybe at the trial, trying to like peek in and see what's going on. So everybody else is gone. But this is the height of the popularity. This is when everyone's like, let's get on board with this and and see what he's going to do. And then, as we said, he ends up going to the temple and, and flipping some tables and, yeah. and cleansing the temples. We look at yeah. so so not the first thing you expected the Messiah. Now that he's been uh, uh, popularly and publicly accepted as Messiah, you're so not yeah. expecting the first thing is for him to attack Jewish leadership. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's funny because Mark eleven verse eleven it says, "And Jesus right after it says, and Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple." And when he had looked round about upon all things, now eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. Mark 11 has collapsed Matthew chapters 21 and fall into like one sentence. Yeah. He doesn't yeah. really talk about the fact that there's this, right, all these other things going on. But he kind of collapsed things down. Um, but it brings me to my next sort of interesting little observation. Um, Mark 11, starting in verse 12. Uh, has this um, on the morrow. So that'd be sort of Monday, right? Um, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree far off having leaves, he came. If haply, he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. And then... Mark's going to have Jesus going into the temple on Monday and cleansing the house. And so he finds the money changers. He finds the seat of those people who are selling animals within the temple courts. And this is where we have 
practically what's called the second cleansing of the temple. And he says, is it not written? My house should be called a of all nations, the house of prayer. But ye have made it a den of thieves. And so then he has right them him flipping the tables, driving them out. Scribes and chief priests heard it, and they're trying to fear. Uh, they fear about it because they're trying to figure out. All these people are astonished at his doctrine. How do we get rid of him? And like, what's going on? So Jesus is really showing his power. Now, verse 20, in the morning as they passed by, so Tuesday morning, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter right calls us to his remembrance. Now, it's interesting that we have this whole sort of fig tree incident and and i think people have been because i i've had people ask me questions like what's going on with the fig tree right why does he have to curse the fig tree um let's just sort of like put things out here number one jesus knows when the fig harvest is he he was around he knows when the fig harvest is um interestingly there are two fig harvests uh, in israel um the first one is usually mid to late june depending on the seasonality of the weather um, second one is the beginning of August. And so the figs, right, will have this. Clearly, this is not June or August. It's March, April, as we'd sort of think about this. So he would know that there are no figs. Mark knows that there's no figs because he says for the time of figs was not yet. Right, right. now. Yeah, well, Jesus it's Passover. Passover yeah, and right. figs don't happen at the same time. Yeah, exactly. So what's Jesus expecting here? The interesting thing with fig trees is, um, when they when they start to have their leaves right in the spring and they bring they bring out their leaves, there's also these green. I don't know the technical word may be nubbin. I'm not really sure what the what the right word is. The Arabic word is um, taqsh. Uh, it's t a q s h taqsh. Um, and they're like these little green. I don't know buds, nubs, whatever we want to call yeah. it. Um, but they show up with the leaves and they are edible. Um, I think this is an account in which Jesus has actual real bodily hunger, if that makes sense. I, I think so, too. He's like, oh, yeah. leaves. Maybe we can eat something. Yeah, maybe we can eat something. I mean, it's not it's if we think about this, and I've really thought about this for a while. I think the Savior's habit, honestly, was to get up in the morning and we have this in several places. Um, Mark chapter one and Luke chapter six, as I'm looking at my notes here. Um, John chapter nine and, and some other places where Jesus gets up in the morning and he spends his morning in prayer. Um, and that's just a great example. Um, but he prays kind of probably through breakfast time, I think on this, on this one. Uh, so he's actually physically hungry. And I think if, if nothing else we can say, like, you want to see the humanity of Jesus, he's hungry, right? He sleeps, he's tired. He's all kinds of things, right? He's hungry here. He goes there like th there's got to be a snack. And what happens? He shows up and there's none of the green nubs. There's no, no touch to sort of use the Arabic term to eat. But yet there's leaves. Now, as fig trees go, um, and those who are in the Near East or who have cultivated figs can probably right, agree. If you have leaves, but none of the green buds um, or nubbins that are there, that tree will not produce fruit. That tree is already indicated to him that it's not going to produce fruit. It's not like it yeah. would have produced fruit later on, and he right. curses it, and then it stops. It's already stopped yeah. right, in general. And so when he goes and there's nothing there, right, then he makes this pronunciation. It's an, it's an interesting thing. Um, to go back to the Old Testament again, as one should, uh, as an Old Testament teacher, um, to go back to the Old Testament um, – I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Jeremiah chapter 8 and Jeremiah chapter 29 talk about the apostasy of Israel and Judah um, and the judgment coming on them in terms of fig trees not producing figs. So there's a real sort of parallel here, too, for the gospel audience. Um, additionally, and, and his, his audience would be familiar with Jeremiah. Like his, would, his, the people would, around him. Yeah, I would hope they would be. Additionally, and they would also be familiar, um, Hosea, Hosea chapter 9, verse 10. And I looked this up because I found it just so interesting. Um, the Lord says to the prophet Hosea, to Israel, it says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness, right? Which is like, should be a great thing, right? Grapes growing in the wilderness, just naturally awesome. I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree at her first time. And so Jose is actually referring to these green little buds. 
that the Lord saw Israel with all the potential, right? These green little buds that you can eat and they're going to fall off before the fig fruits form anyway. Um, but there's all the potential there of the grapes in the wilderness or these fig buds and everything else like that. But what, what happens? Hosea then launches into, they separated themselves when they were in Moab and Ephraim did all these sort of things and there's all these problems. And what's he say in verse 16 of, of Hosea 9? Ephraim is smitten. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. And so there's a strong parallel there here to this fig tree, which is a symbol of Israel. Jesus should be able to go over there and get something to eat on his way to Jerusalem to go clear up the money changers. As he knows what's going to happen. We don't. Um, they didn't when they were with him. But he's going to need some strength. And instead, this fig tree is the ultimate right symbol of, of Israel's we see in the Old Testament and eventually unbelief uh, as we try to see in the New Testament as well. Right. And so it's um, it's interesting though that he takes that and changes it into right when Peter talks to him about it, that he changes it into a discussion about faith. Right? He changes it into a discussion about faith. And, he, and the first thing he says to Peter in Mark chapter 11 verse 23 is have faith in God. Have faith in God. And this is where he talks about he can move a mountain if it's right, if he doesn't doubt in his heart. Um, and he says in verse 24, therefore I say to you, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, ye shall have them. And when he goes on for, for a little bit more instruction, but it's an interesting lesson. Faithlessness in in Old Testament Israel and Judah, epitomized by the fig tree. And his lesson to the disciples then isn't about, right, you stay true and do all the rest of these things. It's about having faith. And I think that goes back to sort of the first principles of the gospel, right? So faith, yeah. repentance, et cetera. So it's all coming back down to having faith. Um, that fig tree wasn't going to produce figs anyway. It wasn't going to happen. Sorry, all those who were cheering for the fig tree in the story. Uh, it just wasn't going to happen. And he knew that. And he knew it was a symbol to be able to teach the disciples and us about the very first principle, right? And that is faith. Um, and if we don't waver from that, then we don't run into the danger of having leaves, but no fruit. I think that's a sort of lesson there. Anyway. And I think there's another interesting kind of subtext going on here. And it has to do with what we've, we've mentioned already. He is being, I don't think it's a coincidence that this happens while uh, as part of the, the, we we call it Palm Sunday, or um, that that Jeremiah typically is associating Jerusalem and Judah's lack of bringing forth good fruit with Jerusalem's bad leadership, uh, wicked kings. After Josiah, he was a good king, uh, but but uh, wicked kings, wicked leaders, false prophets, false priests. Uh, and so on. And Jeremiah really is challenging the leadership of Jerusalem again and again, and that's why he's thrown in prison again and again. Um, but uh, it's you'll also see that the the Savior, besides going down to the temple and and dealing with money changers, his the next whole bunch of his teachings are really challenging Jewish leadership with parables that talk about, well, there was a king and he asked other people to take care of the area while he's gone and they didn't, or they, there was a vineyard and they didn't take care of them and they killed his son, right? And these things, but really after being accepted as king, he, he just almost laser focuses in a really intense way on calling out those who have set themselves up in the place of kingship, but are not doing what the real king, who is his father, would have them do. And I think that this fig tree is part of that, right? Because just like Jeremiah associates the lack of bringing forth fruit with bad leadership, I think the Savior on his way to and from teaching about bad leadership is is using this fig tree uh, imagery. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think you're spot on. The king was, um, if we look at it, I mean, you really do. And starting with David, I think, but but especially with Solomon forward, the king is supposed to be. Um, the sort of head of the religious institution, as we look at yeah. this. Um, he is he, supposed to be the good shepherd, right? Yes, and, he is and, supposed to be leading them. Um, yeah. and, and we see, you know, and we would sort of think about like, oh, well, it's the prophets, all the rest of this, and, or the high priest. But, but really it was the king. I mean, that's why Solomon is the one dedicating the temple, 
right? It's not right. his high priest Zadok, it's Solomon. And it's every king's responsibility then to lead his people in the correct way. And this is why David gets into trouble when he doesn't act as a good shepherd. And he actually takes the sheep from somebody else's household to use Nathan's parable right. uh, analogy. And this is why other kings, like you mentioned, um, so Zedekiah at the, the end, but kings in between there who lead their people astray because they're looked to to be the head of, of the religious institutions. When they don't do the right thing, then this one, the Lord has to send prophets to say and call them out and say, you're not doing this correctly. So we see Hosea and we see Amos uh, attacking them. Isaiah is going to yeah. counsel Hezekiah to be a, a righteous king. Um, Josiah is going to find the book of the law and turn to the Lord with all his heart and become David 2.0 in a sense. And But then Jeremiah is going to be sent to you know his successors, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah to say, you guys are just not doing the right thing here. And all of it comes down to, honestly, as, as I've looked at it, especially in the studies of Jeremiah, but in other times as well, it comes down to the king um, trusting in himself rather than trusting in the Lord. Yeah, or, they, or in the worldly powers. In the worldly in powers. So, in the worldly powers. Yeah. yeah, it's part of their sort of political, right, their political savvy. Yeah. So we oh, see let, let me turn to Assyria. Let me turn to Egypt yeah. instead of God. Yeah. Yeah. We see, we see this with Ahaz and we see this with others um, in, in the old Testament that like, well, and Isaiah tells Ahaz directly in Isaiah chapters, what, six through eight. And that's repeated in the book of Mormon and second Nephi. Yeah. Trust in God. He's going to deliver you. We're, he, he's going to give you a sign, which then we get this beautiful messianic Isaiah chapter seven right. um, prophecy. And he's going to give you a sign. It's going to happen. And instead, he has his like, mm, no, we're going to go with Assyria. So thanks a lot for that. You yeah. know, and then. Yeah. Well, and as you said, I mean, it, specifically well, Jeremiah and Ezekiel uh, both associate shepherds with and being good shepherds or bad shepherds. Actually, they associate bad shepherds with the, the kings of Judah. Um, so th th that's a very strong tie. And I know we're now a couple of weeks past the whole good shepherd teaching, um, but it, it, it's still kind of tying in here. Uh, and, and I like what you said, like David, uh, initially he's a good shepherd. In fact, when I can't help but think of this, when we read the good shepherd teachings, who's, what's the one good shepherd we read about in the old Testament? Well, David, when both a lion and a bear come, he's not a hireling. He doesn't run. Mm -hmm. He's a little he's a little guy that goes and kills the bear and the lion because he's a good shepherd and he's going to take care of those sheep. And then he strays from that. Right. But that that uh, idea that that's the role of the king continues from David on. And that's the failure that the Christ is going to keep pointing out here, even though they don't have kings. He's, he's going to really this at this point, this really becomes a contest. Pharisees a little bit. And he'll certainly talk about the Pharisees. But in many ways, from John 11 on, when Caiaphas says, we've got to kill him, uh, this is this is a contest between the high priests and Christ. Um, and they think they win, but they don't. <laughs> Absolutely. That's one of those things where um, we see this, right? And it's this interesting theme of um, drawing on these long-established ancient Near Eastern, um, rooted right within Israel traditions of like kings and, and association with donkeys, um, the kings as shepherds. And and I'm reminded of uh, uh, even Hammurabi, right? So the Babylonian king with the law code. On his uh, stila and other representations of him, he's wearing a shepherd's hat. So we're looking at, you know, Mesopotamia even. They have this concept and, and all the rest of these. And so you're right. He's coming to directly confront the religious establishment. Money changers and animal sellers in the courts of the temple, that's, uh, I, I think, sort of a sideshow to a bigger show. Um, yeah. And it, again, is evocative of, of Jeremiah 7 and my house being called a house of prayer. And, and all yeah. the rest of sort of zeal thy house is eating me up, as, as Jeremiah says. But it really is about a contest, like who is going to be um, supreme here? Is it going to be, dare I say it, the political religious leaders we're trying to save their own skins and stay in power with the Romans so that they can sort of say what's right, and what's wrong and how to spend the temple treasury. Or, or is it going to be the Messiah who comes and says, this is how a king should act. This is how a king should reform in terms of religion and lead the people as a shepherd. And then it's just up to the people to figure out, right, how they're going to work with this. 
and decide right. who Christ is. Um, and I think that's probably one of the, the leading questions, which brings me to this um, sort of observation. I love John chapter 12. I, the, the teaching, I obviously I love all of it in the Gospels. John chapter 12 is so great um, in this. John chapter 12, verse 20. Um, and there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came, therefore, to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. And if any man serve me, him will my father honored. And then he's going to talk about how, right, what, am, what should I say? Um, this is why I came. And then he says, Father, glorify thy name. And we get then, interestingly, this response in John chapter 12, verse 28. There came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now, right, interestingly, this is one of the few times you can count on both hands where you hear the voice of God the Father in Scripture. Yeah. And what is it doing? It's right saying that he is going to glorify what his name and will glorify it again in that term now let's go back to the beginning this is really this is where i, I want to go with this this is kind of interesting we have here in john chapter 12 certain greeks and the and the word in the in the greek is really right um Hellenes, right so they are greek they're not just yeah. speaking jews they're not from the diaspora the jewish communities who are spread across the roman empire to define that term they're Greeks. So that means they're Gentile converts to Judaism in some sort of way. Um, they come up to worship at the Passover, right? So they're observant. Um, and they come to Philip of Bethsaida and they say to him, and this is the phrase that struck me as I was preparing for our talk today. Sir, we would see Jesus. They've heard about him, I'm sure. And as converts, to this whole world of Judaism, they want to see him. Now, it's likely that Jesus is probably, even though John's collapsing things together, Jesus is probably teaching at the temple beyond the balustrade where Gentiles were not allowed to pass. So he was probably in the court of the women teaching or something, and they approach the disciples. Interestingly, they approach Philip, um, who of all the disciples has the most Greek name, um, so it just makes sense, right? They pick the guy with the, with the Greek name, um, Philip, and then he's going to go find Andrew. So another Greek name, although I doubt that's Andrew's actual given birth name in Judaism. Um, but right, so we get Andrew. So we get the two guys and the disciples who have the most Greek names that have this request from Greek Gentile converts to come see Jesus. The interesting thing with this to me is that whenever we see Philip and Andrew, and we don't see them very often in the Gospels, whenever we see them, they are bringing people to Christ. Yeah. And I think that that is an amazing thing. We see them, right? Philip is the one who, who is called by Christ in Bethsaida, and then he goes and gets Nathaniel, and then he brings Nathaniel to Christ. When you have the feeding of the 5,000, and you have the boy with the two... Um, fishes and the five loaves or the other way around. Um, the one who brings him to Christ is Andrew, right? So Andrew finds him um, and brings him to Christ. And so these two are always bringing people to Christ. And so this is their job, right? They come to him because, I just go back to this phrase, we would see Jesus. We want to see him. We want to experience him. We want to see what this is all about. Now, if we go back to Luke 19, we go back to the Zacchaeus narrative, it's kind of interesting because Zacchaeus, the reason why he was up in the tree, it says mm. in verse uh, 3, if I'm not mistaken, and he sought to see who Jesus, who he was, and couldn't because he was right, short and he had to climb the tree in Jericho, which you and I have probably both been to, not maybe the actual tree, but anyway, we've been yeah. in the area. Um, but I think it's a different sort of sense there. I think Zacchaeus is trying to figure out, like, who is this guy? Like, what's going on here? I think the Greeks already have a sense 
of Jesus and who he is. And they didn't want to experience him. And I think that's one of the sort of lessons that popped out for me was, um, is that our desire too, right? Would we sit there and say we would see Jesus? And I mean, maybe not in a literal sense, right? Like if I think if Jesus showed up in my office, I'd probably be scared um, because like Isaiah, I realized like how unclean I am um, for him to show up to me. Um, but to see him in a sense of hearing him, of having a testimony of him and being able to do this. And what's Jesus' answer? Right? That his answer is not like, sure, like I'll come and write, talk to him for a bit and sign some autographs or whatever. Um, his answer is what? Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He's already focused not only on attacking the Jewish religious establishment uh, of sorts, but he's focused on his mission. Yeah. His mission is to come and to perform that atoning sacrifice. And this is what he's teaching it. Why? Not for his own glory, not to build his own kingdom. But as he says in verse like 27, Right? This is why he came this hour. Father glorified thy name. Yeah. Um, and that goes straight to what I think about with the uh, um what the apostle Paul says that he empties himself, right? So that at the name of Christ every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, and so this all sort of like comes together. Um, and it's interesting because we have these these sort of themes, right? Zacchaeus in a tree, the fig tree, and Zacchaeus wanting to to see Jesus to try and figure out who he is and the Greeks who have probably already figured it out but they want to have a witness of him um, as well and um, I think it wonderfully balances out with Magi from the east at his birth and Greeks from the west that is you know ahead of his death and right everything kind of comes together in this sort of symbiosis some symbolic and and um, synergy if you will that is just amazing right it's a beautiful piece of the gospel here yeah that is beautiful and uh, uh, maybe we can uh just use it to also kind of follow up on some themes we've we've talked about a little bit as well that i think really tie in well with this this uh, there are a couple themes one that god sends his son and his son sends others whose job is to bring people to christ so that christ can bring them to the father uh, and the other is that Christ in every chapter, I, I have a hard time seeing it in chapters, a couple of the early chapters, but really from every chapter of chapter four on in the book of John, you'll find somewhere in that chapter where Christ talks about his relationship with the father and gives glory to the father rather than himself. And you see those tied, they're often tied together, but you see them really tied together here where Christ says that, no, this is to glorify God. But as you said, he his, he's trying to bring people to God, but it's, Philip and Andrew's job, and we we saw them being brought to Christ uh, by John, actually. But uh, but we saw them being brought to Christ, and now their job is to bring other people to Christ, so Christ can bring them to the Father. And as you said, maybe uh, maybe we should put ourselves in the place of of uh, Philip and John, and go and find those. Uh, I mean, Philip and Andrew. Sorry, we need to be Philip and Andrew. Go find those Greeks. And uh, who want to experience Christ and bring them to Christ so they can experience him and then let Christ bring them to the Father. Absolutely. Uh, I had not seen that kind of uh, theme before of uh, Zacchaeus wanting to see and the Greeks wanting to see and uh, Philip and Andrew bringing them. I, I hadn't seen that before, but I think you're right. That that ties the whole thing together. Um, and as we said, so, well, maybe we can just touch on this as well. It, it brings in just what we were talking about and wraps it up in some ways. We, we, I just like briefly mentioned that parable of the vineyard, right? And the, the guy who owns the vineyard and he sends people to the people who are taking care of the vineyard for him and they don't accept his servants. They don't accept his servants. Then he sends his son and kills the son, right? They kill the son. Um, Christ is not the owner of the vineyard. His father is. But it's our job to accept Christ. And uh, and we have as he becomes the king or as he's accepted as king here, he's not really the king. I mean, he is the king, but he's a king under his father. Uh, and, he, and he wants and constantly will make sure we're aware of that. It is the father who he gives glory to. It's the father whose will he does. 
And so, but then he goes on to say, you accept me and you're accepting the father. So that's your path to accepting the father. So the question is, are we accepting him as the king? And are we accepting him as the kind of king he wants us to accept him as, right? It's easy for us to look at them and say, what's wrong with them that they didn't get who he really was? I think we often struggle with not accepting Christ the way he is. We form him in our mind the way we want him to be. And then if his prophets tell us something we don't like, we we reject it because uh, that's not the Christ that we constructed in our mind. Um, but we need to accept him as our king the way he is and let him bring us to the father rather than be those bad uh, vineyard folks. Uh, and uh, we all have chances to serve in this church. Uh, so I guess we're going to have to make sure we're not when Christ comes again, we're not the group who he goes to say, I'm, I'm here as king and you're a problem. And I'm getting rid of it because he does. He confronts the Pharisees so much here uh, as, as he takes over as king in a way. Let's may we make it so that that's not us when he comes again, but rather Absolutely. we have truly accepted him and come to God. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think uh, to, just to round out one more thought, and it's from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 24 talks about um, there's a parable of good figs and bad figs. Mm. And he's shown that there's a basket of good figs uh, and a basket of absolutely rotten figs. And surprisingly, the people who accepted the Lord's direction, who were able to listen to his prophet, and that also meant enduring hardships at times, and then included those who would go into exile. These are the ones who are the good figs, who are the ones that were the ones that were supposed to, to be consumed. The ones that were the rotten figs were the ones who were um, entrenched in their religiosity who had their ideas and their concepts of who God was and how he would work, um, who had the misconception that he would always save Jerusalem, no matter how they acted. Um, and those are the ones that were portrayed as the rotten figs. And so like you, I say, may we be the good ones who accept the Lord's teaching from his prophets, who can say, right, my preconceptions of Jesus may need to be altered to accept him as king and become the good figs and not be like the basket of rotten figs. Amen. 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 Well, thank you, George. I appreciate that. That's This has been a lot of fun. And uh, I'm just grateful for the chance to explore these things with uh, my friends and colleagues. And, and hopefully other people have enjoyed being part of that. Uh, and if you've enjoyed it, then uh, share, spread the word uh, and, and share these with other people. So uh, and may we all uh, come to Christ uh, and let him bring us to the father, which is what his job and his role is. So thank you and have a wonderful day.